All right, let me invite you as uh, people are making their way to uh, downstairs in your seat, if you would open to God's Word. We're looking at uh, first, excuse me, second Samuel. We did last fall wrap up first Samuel. Now we're into second Samuel, although the two of these are one, uh, one unit altogether, the 55 chapters. And, uh, and we're going to take our time uh, working through the, the narrative of second Samuel uh, the first half this fall. Last week, I, I mentioned that uh, prior to the 20th century, one of the things that uh, sailors had to do to navigate the seas uh, was to use their knowledge of the constellation, the stars. And without that, you, you really have very little way except uh, by daylight and land uh, and the sun to, to navigate. And it requires that knowledge of the constellations and the seasons when those are visible, right? Uh, one of those that's most prominent that uh, kind of overrides the, some of the seasons that's most reliable as a reference point is Polaris, uh, you know, known as the North Star in the sky. And it's the most predictable, oftentimes brightest, and, uh, and people can find and navigate part of their way. Even though it's 433 light years away, uh, imagine that. It still is, uh, is, is still a reference. It's a, it's a guide even for us. It's especially important to us uh, if for some reason, uh, you know, the satellites are out of place and we don't have GPS uh, because that's what we rely upon. So here we are standing in the 21st century. And though we, uh, uh, you know, are, are looking at this ancient text of Samuel that was written some 3000 uh, years ago, events that take place 3000 years ago, uh, we, too, uh, can find relevance here. We, too, can navigate uh, God's word, God's story, God's will for our lives uh, because of his, his word. And it shows us, it's relevant because God's word shows us part of his very character and, uh, and his desires uh, for us. And one of the things that he uses, if you want uh, to continue with that analogy, is uh, the, if, if the categories and the things that we can look at to understand. When we see Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, there is this fixed institution and, uh, and, and throne, which is the king and the kingdom. And that's an important one. And, and David is like the north star of that king and kingdom that is a reference point uh, for us that points us, it guides Part of our understanding of how God reveals himself and how it points to uh, the greater uh, son, the greater king, uh, son of King David, which is the person and work of Jesus, the God man. Sadly, uh, many people ignore the Old Testament uh, and the Hebrew Bible altogether. Um, I was I was talking with someone this week who was, uh, was teaching a, a college class uh, in philosophy and he wrote the, the, the name Job on the board and and on and. Out of this, you know, prominent college, a, a classroom full of very intelligent students, uh, no one understood that that wasn't job; it was Job. Uh, and so, you imagine what that's like. The Old Testament is as a gift to us that God has given. Unfortunately, sometimes the people that do choose to take up the Old Testament and to read some of the the narrative and what unfolds there treat it like People Magazine. Oh, look at this! This is wonderful. Or, oh, look at this! This is so crazy and scandalous. Be like this person and don't be like that person, right? Now, that would be very easy to do, by the way, with figures like King Saul. <laughs> uh, there would be easy to do with people, as we're going to find out, like King David. Uh, we wouldn't just say, there are times that we would say, be like David. Follow in uh, the ways of, of his faith and, and trust and obedience. Um, we might look at, at Saul and we say, oh, look at that. I mean, he is a, a, he is a royal mess. 
Maybe some of you got that joke. Uh, pun intended. Here is, here is King Saul. He is a royal mess. And look, here is King David in his triumph or in his tragedy. Be or don't be like this. Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis, who I love, writes this. This, referring to Samuel, is not about David. Ultimately, this is not about David. It's not even about covenant kings. This is a book that's about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. Remember, it's at the close of the book of Judges, which precedes uh, part of this. And, and we, we understand as we come into come out of the book of Judges that at the close, it says in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was it was a dark season, dark days. And now God is raising up. Uh, he's raised up a king and a people. And and the people said, well, we want a king that's not like the other nations or excuse me, that is like the other nations. And God said, well, okay, but, you know, that's Saul, but that's not what I desire. Saul is like the other kings, and he proves that over time. But they were just, ultimately, the problem was their heart. They weren't ready and willing to have God as their king and to yield and trust him. The last of those, the judges in the book of Judges, uh, is, is coming over in overlapping with our study. And that is Samuel. Samuel is, is anointed. He's the, perf- he's the, the prophet uh, established uh, to anoint and appoint the first king of Israel, which indeed is Saul. And Saul ha- had a remarkable start. Um, but he lost his focus and he lost his faith in God. And then we read partway through 1 Samuel chapter 13 that Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man. And he goes on to describe who that's going to be. It's, it's, it's King David. Saul lost his focus on God, on God's plan, God's will. He really started out uh, you know, in a good place, like I said, but then he even over time begins to lose his mind because he's fueled with such jealousy and rage uh, for, for young David, uh, who was one of his uh, commanders. Obviously, we, we, we know some of that relationship. Even David is a young boy we talked about last week. As Saul begins to kind of become, he's, he's unhinged and, uh, and he is, is unstable. I mean, psychologists throughout the years have uh, and psychiatrists have loved to try to diagnose really where he was, you know, off, uh, heading off uh, mentally and emotionally. And, uh, and we find out, if you go back and read the end of 1 Samuel, it is not good where he finds himself. And, and overlapping with that is David, who is anointed. He's not appointed yet. David is anointed to be the next king. It'll come later. He's the commander in Saul's army, like I said. And then later he's perceived by Saul. David is to be a threat. And then we have this, this you know, this the collection of stories where there's, there's these wild chases where Saul is sending his men to go and grab David and, and his men. And David finds himself, you know, as a, as a refugee or as an exile. And he's away from even God's land. And, and just when you think that Saul's ready to surrender and acknowledge, yes, David, okay, you, you're God's choice and I have failed. Uh, he doesn't do that. He goes back. And, and uh, next thing you know, he's throwing a spear, trying to take the life of David. Humans love stories. Uh, frankly, we, we need stories as humans. Um, I think that's no surprise to you. God knows that we need stories 
And God has given us stories. Some of those stories are long and some of those are short. There's a legend that says that Ernest Hemingway, great writer, Ernest Hemingway uh, was, this is a, a barroom tale where he was challenged. He was, uh, he was given a bet. He says, could you write a full story in six words? And Hemingway says, yes, I can. Here it is. For sale, baby shoes never worn. There's a story there. It's in the spirit of that kind of simple yet profound brevity. Uh, I heard uh, an NPR interview on a podcast. They were talking with two writers who had gone, two writers who had gone and researched and polled people to see if they might have a way of telling a story, their own story, in a single sentence. The result was a book that they wrote called Not Quite What I Was Planning. Right, those are six words. There's a six-word memoir. Not what, not quite what I was planning. That could be anyone's story, right? We don't get to write our story. Uh, we 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 wouldn't write it the way it was written. Oftentimes, God is a collection of a six-word memoirs that they put in this book. Some famous people, some not so famous artists, musicians, others. Their stories are sometimes uh, a bit funny. They're, they're little six-word memoirs. Some of them are kind of sad, but all of them are concise. <laughs> and here, here are a couple of them. I still make coffee for two, Zach Nelson. Here's a story there. Uh, caring for parents, life is circular, Tim McGrath. Here's one, Bob Barker, you know, uh, The Price is Right. My life story, spay or neuter. Anybody get that one? Yes, I think you probably do. Stephen Colbert. Well, I thought it was funny. There's his six words. I own three teenagers myself. Here's one I hear from time to time. I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> if it was King Saul's epitaph, now back to Samuel here. If it was King Saul's epitaph, if it was his six-word summary, rose so fast, fell so far. At the close of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, we read that, it was, and it's partway into this chapter in 2 Samuel um, chapter 1 that we see the nation of Israel. And it's, it's almost as if we're reading it and it's, it's D-Day and it's, it's the equivalent of Israel's D-Day and 9-11 all combined. Because if you might recall, we talked about this last week. David, it's, it's, it's the quintessential example of an emotional roller coaster because King David is celebrating with his men the fact that they've been able to recapture from the Amalekites their wives and their children from war. They've had a great victory. They're back at the, at the city of Ziglag. And, uh, and, and, and next thing you know, in walks this young messenger who has uh, talked of how they've lost the battle. The, the, the nation of Israel and King Saul have, have lost and now uh, there's this devastating news that, uh, that comes. Let's stand and read as we pick up that news. Second Samuel, we're in chapter 1. I'll read uh, just a few verses here at the beginning, and then we're going to look at the second half. Here at the beginning, it says, When that, uh, young, that young messenger came, verse 3, it says, David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to them, well, well, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from battle 
And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. David is, is distraught. Uh, this is to him tragic news. We pick up in verse 17. I'm going to read the response that David has in song. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan with his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shields of the mighty was the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned, not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You you, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. You clothe you, you clothe you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me ask God's help. Do pray with me. Father, uh, thank you for giving us both general revelation and special revelation. We thank you for uh, the beauty of, of and the order of your general revelation and creation. But we need more and we're grateful that we have through your word and through your son and through your spirit special revelation. So please would you send your spirit so that there might be light and, and clarity for us to see and behold the things that you want, that we might see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Sometimes when our family uh, drives southward, uh, we head uh, near New York. Sometimes we even can see Manhattan. We try to you know, hit the right bridge at the right time. And inevitably, when you're on the New Jersey side, looking back over the Hudson, you can see Manhattan. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable sight. Sometimes um, you can even off the turnpike see uh, you know, things like the Statue of Liberty. Um, I never had a chance to see uh, the, twin, the Twin Towers, uh, the World Trade Center. I, would never, I mean, I didn't have a chance to see the Twin Towers. Uh, but, you know, there was one time we were driving and they have at the memorial these blue beams of light that will shoot up so high and so bright that you can see uh, the memorial of those fallen towers. Just, a, a, you know, a ray of light, two of them going up for 60 miles out. People rec- uh, have, have suggested you can see these. It's a memorial. It's... It's right there, you know, in front of you. I highlight that to say this is part of David's memorial that he has constructed, so to speak, a song of lamentation that the people of God would remember this day in the the tragic day in the nation of Israel's history. The chapter here, you can see it, even just looking at the structure of it, uh, is really in two parts. There's a narrative and then there's poetry. Uh, there's, There's the narrative of what, was described the poetry is the the elegy, if you will, of of King David, this warrior poet who puts together 
he's soon to be King David. He's not yet King David. But it was a way of, of him building a song to memorialize uh, in Israel's history. Notice, of course, that this is not a typical, what these modern day people call a celebration of life ceremony. Uh, many of you know I don't like that uh, phrase. Uh, this is David grieving and mourning and in deep sorrow. Uh, we call it lamentation. He's lamenting something. He's not trying to move on. He tore his back in verse 11 and verse 12. It says that he in a public display of emotion, he tore his clothes and he is weeping out loud. Imagine that, right? You can you can remember in your life the first time you saw one of your parents or your grandparents weeping. Someone that you look up to, someone who has uh, authority in your life weeping. I can't imagine that. Uh, that moment as David's mighty men were surrounding him as he was going through these feelings. What an impact it would have made. This is kind of where Ecclesiastes, you know, uh, rings back true, which is what we studied in the summer. And Ecclesiastes says in, in chapter three, there's a time for what? There's a time for mourning and there's a time for weeping. There's a time for other things, too. But there is a time. For weeping and mourning. In fact, it was chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes that says so clearly, sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of face the heart is made glad. It's the heart of the wise who's in the house of, of mourning, and it's the house of fools that's in the house of mirth or partying. Paul Tripp, who is a counselor and author that I really appreciate, he talks about. Um, This He says, all you need to know about a man's heart can be found in what he celebrates and what he mourns. We can find out that's so true. If you contemplate that, you can find out so much about a person and really where their heart is and looking at what they both celebrate and what they mourn. What about you? What what do you celebrate? Do you celebrate the, the demise of your enemy? Do you do you grieve? Do you grieve at the loss of health or wealth or relationships? Well, of course you do. We all do. And to what extent? And when that grieving happens or when that celebrating happens, what does it reveal? What does it reveal about our heart and our priorities? The narrator tells us here that a lamentation is underway, that David composed this. A lamentation is not simply just raw emotion, right? It's, it's more than that. Some have said it's, it's using both our, our affections and our, our minds. One person described it as a, as a lamentation is, is a cogent agony, right? There's a, there's a thoughtfulness to the grief that happens in what David composes here that people are to memorize in song. Six words to summarize this particular chapter. Here's what those six words would be. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Kind of worked out for me. Uh, I was looking for the six words. This, I was thinking about six words for my own life. I haven't come up with it. Maybe I'll assign that to the family. Uh, what's your memoir? Here, the chapter for David right now, it's, oh, how the mighty have fallen. And in the, in the Hebrew here, they really form three stanzas. He repeats that phrase three times in what we read between verses seven and the close of the chapter. 
Oh, how the mighty have fallen. What is, great, what is David grieving? David is grieving three things. David is grieving for God's people. David is grieving for the king. And David is grieving for his brother, Jonathan. David is grieving for the nation, God's people. Look there at verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain, uh, has slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. He touches on the fact that Israel, the people of God, the covenant community, were to be distinct. They were to be a people who were, um, uh, who were victorious, who distinguished themselves because we could see at work in the people of God his power and, and his strength, the might of Yahweh. But it's confusing because right now they're suffering. They're, they're a disgrace. He, re, he laments the loss that they had in two different places in verse 20. The loss they had uh, in Philistia and then the loss they had in verse 21 at Mount Gilboa. And, the, and it says there that in verse 21, the shield, their shields are, de, are defiled, right? And normally, and for King Saul in particular, but in battle, the shields of, of these soldiers would have been prepped and ready. They would have been glaring off of the sun because they would have been, uh, you know, polished with oil. And that would have been a frightful sight, a large army of, of, of men with shields anointed with oil and, and glaring. But that's not the case. He's envisioning. He can't be there. This is, you know, there's no global, you know, news network that's covering what's on the, the, the storm, uh, the war front. He's just envisioning that right now, all of those shields are just covered with muck and dirt. They're defiled, just lying there because of death. And he can't stand the thought. He abhors the thought that some pagan nation is, is trash talking right now. That they're gloating in their victory. These unbelievers against God's people. People have often said that shame has a way of aggra- aggravating grief. Shame does have a way of aggravating grief. David wants to cover up this. He wants to, to cover this national disgrace in verse 24, he talks about the daughters of Israel and he instructs the daughters of Israel as a nation, you should weep. You should weep over this, this loss. And David here points us, I think, and even there's, a, there's a, an echoing, so to speak, forward to that greater king, his son, many, many generations down, the son of David, King Jesus, who cared deeply for his people, the nation of Israel. As Jesus would enter his last week of life, you know, the, the Passion Week, we talk about this. It's Palm Sunday. He's riding in on a donkey. Luke records what the people did in Luke 19. And what did they do with palm branches? Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is what they say. Jesus then looks across into the city. He can see the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of Israel, and he knows that there's unbelief there. He knows that he came to his own, but his own rejected him. He knows that he's going to die himself and suffer this very week. So David grieves. He he grieves for the nation. The second thing we see here in this lamentation is that David grieves for the king. Beginning in verse 22, he speaks of the triumph of both David and his son, Jonathan, in battle. David's son, Jonathan. 
Jonathan and David both with sword and with archery. And he chooses here to only recollect the best. He honors the memory. It's very obvious that he's honoring the memory of King Saul. I remember um, an older minister once told me in, in, in giving me some instruction, practical wisdom. He says, there's no reason at a funeral to ever uh, speak ill or critical of the deceased. And that's an important thing. And, and you kind of look at David here and you go, yeah, but I mean, you kind of had a little bit of latitude, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is your arch enemy, but he doesn't. He doesn't speak of the faults and the failures of Saul. He chooses to focus on the office of the king. And many would say that it was his love, right? Look at verse 23. He conjoins the two, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death. They were not divided. What is he doing here? I think many would suggest that his love, his affection for Jonathan helped to color positively, that is, color his view and his interpretation of Saul here more favorably. We said it last week that it's natural, right, for people to grieve. We all know that. But it's supernatural for people to grieve the death of their enemy. Because as it pertains to Saul, David had every reason to hate Saul, to rejoice that his his enemy is defeated finally, finally, after dozens of years of having to to run and, and and to... to be a, 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 you know, threatened to be killed. And just as an aside, how do you feel? We, saw, we talked about this last week. How do you feel, right? When someone in your life, a rival, an enemy, an opponent, even someone that you're competing against and for at work, they fall. If anything, David should be smiling. If anything, David should be gloating, not weeping. Inside even, he could have said, Saul, see, I told you so. I told you so. But at no point, even in the long journey, even when there's, there's abuse against David, does he do that? He is committed to, David is committed to God's perfect timing and God's will. David would wait on the Lord and not try to get ahead of God's plan. David, my friends, is a beautiful illustration of what Jesus calls us to when he says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. David reminds us in his words and in David's posture of an even greater king. A greater king who had every reason to despise and to destroy his enemies and yet entrust all of it to God. Jesus was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. He suffered unjustly. And that, of all places, on a cross. And even there, he says, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So David points us to Christ, even grieving for the king. Lastly, we see here in this lamentation that David grieves for his brother. Let's look again at verse 25 and 26. Oh, the mighty, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. Now, I just want to address something that I really wish that I didn't have to. But some have, 
um, tried to take this passage and twist it to suggest that there was some type of homosexual erotic love between David and Jonathan. Mind you, in a time in the ancient Near East when there were marriages that were something of a political or economic expediency, in a world, in the culture of a military culture, there were times when a soldier, his bond with his fellow men and soldiers was very, very deep. Yes, exceeding that of a wife. Notice he said it surpassed, it did not replace the love of a woman. And again, Dale Ralph Davis, the scholar, writes this. The comparison between Jonathan's love and of a wife's love is not at the point of sexuality, but at the point of fidelity, fidelity. He regularly, David regularly refers to his love and devotion for Jonathan as a brother, a brother, a brother. In fact, he was his brother, his brother-in-law. Homosexuality was and is clearly a perverse violation of God's law. And as many commentators have noticed, really the fact that anyone would suggest amongst modern people that we should read the text this way is more a commentary on us as a culture and our hyper-over-sexualized view of relationships, sadly enough. David's heart is ripped Apart, Jonathan was a beloved and faithful brother and fellow soldier. And if we live long enough, some of you have, most definitely, I guess I'm speaking more to you students. If you live long enough, you'll experience the agony of loss. Matthew Henry says, the more we love, the more we grieve. In fact, Another way to put it is sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest. That's not original to me. I just I stumbled across that saying. Sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest. We're not, we're not to retreat, right, from love for fear that we might be hurt or experience grief. No, no, no. We don't retreat from love. But we, we should be, as a people, soberly preparing ourselves for the day, for the days, plural, of lamentation, convinced still, even in that sorrow and grief and mourning, that there is a love that is so great in Christ that nothing, neither war nor death nor angels nor powers can separate us from. Romans 8 so clearly spells that out. Nothing can separate us from a love like that, the love of God. Jonathan faithfully honored his father, King Saul, the first king, and yet Jonathan was loyal to David as well. He knew, Jonathan knew that he must be second. He took off his robe, signifying, I know that you, David, are the Lord's anointed, even though I'm next in the bloodline and I would take the throne. No, no, no. It is God's will that you would be the king. And that was at his cost, partly. If you were to give David a six-word memoir, a life sentence, a summary, what would it be? Well, God already gave it for us. A man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. First Samuel 13. Well, 
What's yours? What is yours? And is it, is it a memoir? Is it a sentence that is self-centered or God-centered? I, I know by nature, mine is self-centered. Does your life testify to a mere job or career or family or, or hobbies? You know, Gary, he was all about blank. What do you, what do you envision? What do, what do people see and perceive? Is it allegiance to a sports team? There are many people buried in graves with Patriots uniforms on. They never played for the Patriots, but that's just another interesting aside. What, what is it? What is it that you would say, well, maybe that's part of why we go back to that question in revealing our hearts. What do you grieve and what do you celebrate? Do you grieve so deeply the loss of your reputation? Is it, is it sentiment? Is it sensuality? Or is it shallow things that you grieve and celebrate? Do you wallow in self-pity when you fall down and then just retreat instead of, instead of looking up? It's, it's not the fact that we're down, by the way. That's part of lamentation, right? Is that we are down, is that we are, we are feeling the weight and we might even at times be grieving. Lord, have it be more the, the case for me that I would be grieving my own sin, not the consequences of it just, but the fact that I have not loved the Lord my God and my neighbor with a whole self and whole heart. I was pierced this week when I was talking to a friend on the phone. He read to me a line from the Scottish author George MacDonald. He says, things go not wrong in this, this, this poem. He says, things go not wrong when, I sudden, when sudden I fall prone. But things go wrong when I snatch my upheld hand from thine and proud or careless think to walk alone. Then things go wrong when I, poor, silly sheep, to shelves and pits from the good pasture creep. Not when the shepherd leaves the 99 and to the mountain goes after the foolish one. I think to myself, you know, whether it is defeat or struggle or sin or grief or shame, that the times when I have it's not, it, it, it's, it's, it's those seasons when I'm inclined to keep my hand up, but I just love the imagery of that poem when he says that I pull back my hand from yours. And I know that I do that in reliance upon self and trusting in that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Does your story, does your song, does your memoir show love for God or love for self? Does it speak of bitterness and despair or does it speak a story and a song of hope? Does it speak of obedience to your own self cravings and ambition or does it speak of surrender and love to the rule of a king, the king of kings, Jesus? Saul lived, we know, and he died, frankly, sadly, by suicide. He was so despairing. He, he lived and he died 
in a selfish way. And David, by faith, didn't do that. In the promise of God's love, he knew there was a coming Christ anointed greater than he. And he didn't know, like we do, the details of the God-man Jesus of Nazareth. But he was looking forward by faith, King David was, to the day when God would send an everlasting king from his line. Thanks be to God, he came, a final king. He rules and he dies for the sake of his people. If Jesus had a six-word memoir, what would it be? Father, not my will, but yours. Father, not my will, but yours. And pray, praise God. You know, you contemplate this. That Jesus' death was not a tragedy. It was not an accident. That it was actually a triumph and a victory. And Colossians 2 talks about this. There's nothing that we need to, to cover up as much as King David said. I don't want the disgrace of the people of God to be known in Philistia and Mount Gilboa. No, no, no. The cross is, is, it is scandalous. It is sad in one sense. But it is a symbol of triumph and victory for which we are not ashamed of the cross of Christ. Not at all, because in dying, Jesus brings life. Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul, I love the way that the NIV translates this. He says, when you were dead in your sins, Paul writes, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, we're hard hearted, we're dead, we're closed off to God. It says that he made us alive in Christ. He forgave us of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. Our condemnation. And he nails it to the cross, he says. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. By the cross. By the blood of Christ. And now we come, right? And what do we do right here? What do we do at this table? We remember, oh, forgetful people. We are called to remember by faith that his blood and his life was shed and broken for us. We celebrate. And it it invites us, even as we prepare right now in prayer, to repent and believe because we have such a good king. To set aside the things that inhibit our our love and devotion and the ways that we try to live self-centered lives. To say, it's all about the king. It's not about me. To celebrate it, to grieve the right things. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray right now that you would teach us and guide us by your spirit to treasure Christ more and more, who is our savior and our king, who came to set us free to... Give us victory in part, and later we will see it in full. Lord, would you please guide us? We know that you are a resurrected, life-giving king. Would you guide us and lead us away from sin and self? I pray today for those who are burdened with grief, who are mourning loss. I pray that you would help them grieve well. You would guide them with your with your might and your mercy. I pray for people who, for for them, the distress 
and things like addiction linger so strong, I pray you would give them comfort and victory. Lord, I pray for people who are struggling physically and that can take such a toll on us emotionally. Would you have mercy, Lord, on our sister Dottie as she struggles with pain? There are others, Lord, that have challenges and and, and just chronic reminders of broken relationships and broken bodies. Would you please meet them? Would you teach us, Lord, that we might remember that our governor and king is Jesus and our real citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray today, Lord, I pray for other churches that faithfully preach this gospel because we want renewal and revival. We pray today for North River Community Church. I pray for Mayflower Congregational Church that you would keep both these congregations and their leadership unified and encouraged on mission. Bless them. And we do want repentance and revival and renewal to come to our community. Would you hear us, Lord, as we pray? Even now as we pray, as you taught Jesus, your disciples, to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, 